0: Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the phenomenon of the pro-Trump conspiracy cult, QAnon, what it is, and why so many people are getting sucked into it, not just the people you'd expect. Clips today are from Deconstructed, Tom Hartman, You Are Not So Smart, The Topical from The Onion, QAnon Anonymous, The Last Post, MSNBC, folding ideas on YouTube, power corrupts, and on the media. Be warned, today's episode contains satire, and unfortunately we live in a world in which that needs to be made explicit because reality has a way of catching up with even the most outlandish satire.
1: I have some familiarity with the Nazis having known real Nazis and having, you know, been there. And and one of the things that consistently in talking with people that I knew who were Nazis or who had been Nazis, I'm talking real German Nazis now. This was back in the 80s. These people were in their 60s then. And one of the things that I know is that one of their major influences was a, a, a booklet that was published in 1902 in Russia. It was written by the Russian secret police on behalf of Tsar Nicholas II because Nicholas was of the opinion, Nicholas wasn't a particularly good Tsar, king of Russia, and he was a kleptocrat. He wanted everything. And the institutions, some of the institutions of Russia, particularly the banking institutions, were pushing back on some of the things he was doing. And so he had this thing drafted, it was called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, that said that Jews were trying to undermine and destroy Russia from within. And that what they did on the high Jewish holy holidays, and we're heading toward one right now, was that they would literally drink the blood or drain the blood from children, from non-Jewish children, from white children, and use that blood to make matzah, use it to make the unleavened bread that you would eat around uh, Passover ceremonies and things like that. This was a big deal. I mean, this this was widely, and then Hitler came to power, and in Mein Kampf, he references this, he ordered he actually commissioned a children's book that was a children's version of the protocols of the elders of zion and had it distributed to every school in germany i had conversations with my friend armin Lehmann about this who was the 15 year old courier who brought hitler the news that the war was lost and was there when hitler committed suicide armin wrote a book about it i've talked about this before armin's been on my show armin's dead now but um, back more than a decade ago, he was, he was on my show many times talking about these issues. And the kids believed it. Everybody believed it. It was a cult that, they believed that the Jews were a cult that stole and abused, including killing, white children. So Gregory Stanton, published a piece in justsecurity.org that I tweeted over the weekend. You can find it on my Twitter fin- uh, timeline if you're looking for that particular story. Or you can just, you can just Google it. It's titled QAnon is a Nazi cult rebranded. And he starts out saying, a secret cabal is taking over the world. They kidnap children, slaughter, and eat them to gain power from their blood. They control high positions in government, banks, international finance, the news media, and the church. They want to disarm the police. They promote homosexuality and pedophilia. They plan to mongrelize the white race so it will lose its essential power. And then he said, does that sound familiar? This is, ex- this is pretty much the story that you get from QAnon right now. And he said, it's actually, he said it was called The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. It was written by Russian anti-Jewish propagandists around 1902. Central to his mythology was the blood libel, which claimed that Jews kidnapped and slaughtered Christian children and drained their blood to mix in the dough for matzahs consumed on Jewish holidays. The Nazis published a children's book of the protocol. You know, and he goes through the whole thing. And then he goes through the history of this. And now you've got QAnon saying that the Jewish billionaire George Soros and Jews who control the media, and they, you know, they'll point out, you know, hey, Wolf Blitzer's Jewish. Didn't you know that? That kind of stuff. This is, you know, QAnon. And and they're saying, oh, well, you know, uh, uh, these people want open borders so that brown children can invade America and mongrelize the white race. This is part of the story of QAnon. The so-called deep state is largely the Jewish deep state. And now in Germany, as he pointed out in Just Security, over 200,000 of the new Nazis, the neo-Nazis, have now taken the QAnon pledge. They've embraced this. He says in the 30s, millions of, of Europeans were unemployed Violent battles between Nazis and communists raged in city streets. Democratic governments were powerless. And today, the American people suffer from a plague. Millions of Americans have lost their jobs. Angry mobs roam American cities and battle militarized police and heavily armed militias. The American government seems paralyzed. Dictators rule Russia and China. Islamic fascists rule Saudi Arabia and the old Ottoman and Persian empires. The American president appeases Russia, scapegoats China, and looks the other way as Putin and bin Salman murder their opponents. Now, there have been a few Republicans who have called this out. Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger, Ben Sasse, have all said, no, wait a minute, we don't want that. But how did a Nazi cult get rebranded and have this much power and influence in America. This is amazing.
2: I recently finished a project where I did a lot of research into conspiracy theorists and how they interact on, online, and Tom Stafford, a cognitive scientist, had told me that one of the elements of conspiratorial thinking that has the reason that has risen to the top of our collective conscious here recently, and even infected our politics at a new level, or at least the more salient level is that in his framing of it, when we're online, you said something similar in the book in that we have these evolved social mechanisms, and but in this context, you can feel a certain way and then that can be algorithm, algorithmically driven toward the, the ends of the corporation or whatever entity is, has us inside their walled garden. And he was saying that it was... These people are talking to each other in an environment, whether it's like a subreddit or whatever, where they feel like they're in a community. They feel like they're having an exchange of ideas and that they are coming to a consensus and they're figuring things out. And he said that, but they're not actually in a community. They just are getting the feeling that they're in a community, but they're really alone and they're isolated. And so they're basically alone together, right? Right. Uh, and, And in doing so... It's not like a, a group of doctors who are like someone says, I may not, they are scientists who say this idea looks like it's not working out. The evidence is starting to point in the other direction and they update. A conspiratorial community doesn't update. Everyone's independent interpretation of the evidence is as valuable as anybody else's as long as they stay collected. And so it's just the tribal aspect of it is what is being pinged. And it feels like that's a dangerous place. And it, and it seems almost like a, a stop, a intermediary step in toward the future that you're imagining where how do I be remain an individual but also have community? I guess I'll just fo- I'll stick with these people who are like minded. and And then we have a community and then that community is now antagonistic toward this other community. It feels like that's the space we're in right now. What's your reading of that?
3: You can look at. Online communities as subscriptions to particular conspiracies (laughs) and it's really the thing that the internet does just like reality tv does it is it decontextualizes everything so how are we going to interpret this picture how are we going to interpret this sequence and in some ways the community that you pick online are the other people who put the picture together in the way that you do so, okay, George Soros is a globalist Jew internationalist something who's funding protests and uh, that uh, that's my group or okay, uh, uh, Donald Trump's people are are what, what did she call irascibles? What was the word she used? Intolerables? Um, De- deplorables? Deplorables. There you go. <laughs> irascibles. <laughs>
2: the irascibles.
3: <laughs> I think that, that irascible is actually a compliment. Yeah. Deplorable. Your,
2: your next book should be called the irascibles.
3: The irascibles. Like <laughs> Nobody uses that word anymore. Do bring they? it back. Bring it back. There you go. And you know, and I could put um, I could put like Spanky on the cover, because <laughs> he was an irascible rascal. Yeah. Um, Perfect. Uh, oh my God, that's an aside. So if your online group are going to be the other people who put together the picture the way you do, then all you're using your online group for is to reinforce the arbitrary mosaic that you've assembled. That's weird. It's not community in the traditional sense, but it is serving a need. It's helping you reinforce or confirm your reality and unfortunately helping you see it as the way things are rather than as one provisional understanding mm-hmm. you know the the what i was hoping was that we would that the internet would help everybody see that their interpretation of reality is just one of the reality tunnels you know more of a sort of robert anton wilson perspective on mm. the world where everybody is in their own tunnel. Everybody puts the picture together and it's fascinating. Oh, how do you see it? Oh, how do you see it? How do you see it? We all see it differently. And the fact that we all see it differently helps us know that none of us is really seeing it. And what these little groups do online is the opposite effect. Is it like it becomes your group's understanding of things? It becomes cultish, becomes the way it is, rather than a way to understand it. And once we're there, then we're not human anymore. Then we're trying to interpret reality with the, again, with the almost historical validity, the literal historicity of the algorithm.
2: Um, My friend Alistair Kroll, who writes about this kind of stuff, he told me once that on the internet, if you say you want a grilled cheese sandwich you're not actually presenting an argument for a grilled cheese sandwich or the value of grilled cheese sandwiches you're saying help me find the grilled cheese room because that's really what I want I want to you know want to find the like-minded grilled cheese enthusiasts and and so when you proclaim what you want you're helping the machines find the group you want to be part of as opposed to the machine uh, helping you have a conversation in the group that you're already in. And I thought about that because toward the end of the book, you really make this bold statement of saying, you, you bring back the statement of find the others. And a lot of the book is about our desire for connectedness and all of our biological proclivities for being good at being connected and getting the most out of being connected in and community. And, and, and the weird messiness of being people is uh, being subverted by the very things we created to encourage that.
4: The far-right conspiracy theory dubbed QAnon has gained an alarming amount
0: of traction in the lead-up to this year's presidential election, and today we may have more of an understanding as to why. A new psychological study published this morning has found that the appeal of QAnon can be attributed largely to it being 100% true. Top psychiatric researchers have concluded that when a certain type of person is presented with theories that our government is secretly run by a cabal of Satan-worshipping pedophiles, they will have a tendency to believe these claims due to the fact that they're totally real and absolutely can be backed up with hard undeniable evidence if you just read between the lines. Interesting. I may have to dive into my Facebook feed
1: and do a little research on this for myself. How exactly does law enforcement define child sex
5: trafficking? The central problem with human trafficking and what brings us all of these conspiracy theories, and what makes it so easy to twist this issue into whatever you want it to be, is the vast gulf between the legal definition of the term human trafficking and the societal definition of the term. What people think when they hear human trafficking. So. When most people hear human trafficking, they think of Liam Neeson. They think of his (laughs) daughter being kidnapped by, like, Armenians, and they're going to put her in a shipping container, and she's going to be in this, like, shady international network that's being sent around the world. That is a straightforward moral panic. That is an urban legend. That form of trafficking, of children being kidnapped, sold into these vast international networks, that is fake. It's a conspiracy theory all the way down. The problem is the legal definition of trafficking. And when you hear about, you know, there's been this many confirmed human trafficking cases or there's been this many prosecutions of human trafficking this year, the legal definition encompasses things like forced marriages in South Asia. It encompasses anyone who is doing any work of any kind to pay off a debt. So if a woman from Kenya moves to the United States and she has to borrow money to pay off her plane ticket and she does that with her nannying job, that is under the law human trafficking. And when it comes to children, human trafficking covers anyone who trades a sex act for anything of value. So a pimp is not required. Recruitment is not required. Coercion is not required. If you are a homeless teenager and it is cold and raining and you're desperate and you agree to have sex with somebody so that you can sleep at his home, that is human trafficking. Technically, he is your trafficker. Legally speaking, that is an act of human trafficking. So We have this vast array of legal acts that are happening, none of which are good. But all of those get boiled down into this pop culture Liam Neeson understanding of the term, and they're just not the same.
1: So it sounds like the problem is is that,
4: like, when I guess when law enforcement tracks this stuff, their definition is so incredibly broad. It can encompass like lots and lots of things that are bad to varying degrees, but it's like, but when people hear sex trafficking, they just, they go exactly to like the worst case, most dramatic scenario.
5: Yes. I mean, I should say I have spoken to the kind of the two major human trafficking organizations in the United States that are perpetuating a lot of these sort of stranger danger myths of human trafficking. Neither one of them can provide me with a single example of a child Being trafficked by a stranger on an airplane. This is something that we do not have a single confirmed case of. And yet we have posters in every single airport being like, Oh, look for, look for children with these signs. Make sure you call this hotline number. They're in every single rest stop in America. And we don't have examples of this form of trafficking actually taking place. Isn't
6: this something that John McCain's wife uh yes! fell into so she called somebody uh... Yeah, she 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 saw a child and a and an adult in an airport and called security on yes. them. So this yes. stuff was already in the making, man. The, the Republicans were ready.
5: Yes, she literally saw an interracial family and <laughs> she thought that it was trafficking. And she called the cops. And then, even more disturbing, the way that we found out about this is that the next day, she was on a local radio show talking about how she rescued someone from being trafficked. Even though all she did was call the cops, they confirmed it was just an interracial family, and everyone moved on with their lives. And yet, in her head, she has rescued a trafficking victim. (laughs) Right. This is the problem with this, is it's all this sort of like shadows and sort of a friend of a friend of an uncle of a brother. And then you get these... Wild stories that nobody can confirm. I mean, it's like, you know, flash your high beams at a gang member initiation and you get killed. It's it's exactly like the fucking email forwards that we got in the 1990s.
4: What about the, the missing children? I keep hearing like QAnon people talk about the epidemic yes. of missing children. So I assume that every time a child is missing, it means that they are <laughs> basically on the plane to the cabal or something.
5: That's very fortunately not the case. Mm. So this is it's hard to get it's easy to get wrapped up in all this conspiracy stuff, but it is in fact extremely good news that this is not happening in large numbers. And if it was, there would be many, many other signs of it than like whatever you found zip ties on your car in the Whole Foods parking lot, right? So the thing to keep in mind about every single statistic regarding missing children, and there's a lot of different ones that go around, is that these are not the number of children who disappear. These are not the number of children who quote unquote go missing. These are the number of reports of missing children in a year. So one of the numbers that goes around a lot is 800,000 children. 800,000 children disappear every year. That's more than 1% of all children in the country, by the way. So just on its face, we should be skeptical of these (laughs) kinds of large numbers. (laughs) Secondly, this particular number comes from a 2001 report from 1999, that the author of the report has now disavowed it and has instructed people not to use it. So that's with that specific number. But the biggest problem with these large numbers in general is that more than 99% of missing kids come home. They come home within days. They come home within hours. More than half of reports of missing children are custody disputes. It's like dad takes the kids for the weekend. Sunday night rolls around. He hasn't brought the kids back. Mom freaks out. Mom calls the cops. It takes him a couple more days to bring the kids back. She has to threaten him. It's a really ugly situation. Eventually, the kids get brought back to her. That happens extremely frequently. In America as part of custody disputes. It's really sad and it's really awful, but it's just something that happens quite a bit. They're called custodial kidnappings. It's very common in America. Another really common thing is kids who run away. There's a lot of kids who live in abusive homes. There's a lot of kids who are queer or trans and their parents are rejecting them. There's a lot of kids in foster care facilities who end up running away because they're awful. And so these are things that happen most of the time The cops are called and the cops find the kids and the cops return them to the abusive situations. Like we do not have a good system for dealing with runaways. We don't have a social safety net to help kids in these situations. So in some ways, they're highlighting like a real issue, but they're completely missing the real issue. And they're fast forwarding to this fake shipping containers, Liam Neeson version of the issue. In actual real cases, such as Epstein's, we actually had a lot of victims coming forward, and we had a lot of the families of those victims coming forward, and we had authorities not doing anything, right? Right. So at the same time, it's this conspiracy theory, but it's also, it's profoundly deferential to power in some ways, right? It's questioning some forms of power, but it's also saying, oh, we should trust law enforcement, right? As long as we come forward, everything is going to be fine. And what we've had in so many of these cases, like R. Kelly is another one, Bill Cosby is another one. I mean, we've had people serially treating women terribly. And over and over again, we've had people come forward. We've had people express concerns and nothing happens. Because oftentimes they are blinded by the power that is making them not trust their gut or the authorities don't give a shit because it's a wealthy and powerful and connected person. I mean, most of the actual prosecutions of human trafficking are people who have bought the services of a sex worker without realizing that she's underage or maybe he does realize that she's underage and doesn't care. Or it's somebody who is a manager, sort of what is colloquially known as a pimp, who is actually managing a number of sex workers. Mm. But this is typically something that happens after people are sex workers. And again, I don't want to minimize this. Like These are all terrible things that are happening. But the extent to which actual trafficking is real, it is a problem that is concentrated among poor people, people of color, otherwise vulnerable people who are being exploited by someone who is manipulating the fact that they do not have other recourse to any other social services or support. It's a targeted problem among particular populations that the same people squawking about QAnon stuff do not give a shit about, right? Right. If you really want to end this form of trafficking, end homelessness. Like, having actual options for kids who are under 18 to go sleep in a shelter rather than sleeping on the streets, that would do way more to prevent trafficking than a million prosecutions. So, Again, you don't want to minimize this and you don't want to take away anybody's individual experience because there really are like some terrible experiences that people have. And this is a problem in the United States. But the conspiracy theory version of it puts all of that under the law enforcement system, right? They think that we can prosecute our way out of it. They think that we can take the same approach that we took to the war on drugs of just, oh, let's mass incarcerate our way out of this problem rather than solving the underlying vulnerabilities, which are mostly homelessness and the foster care system.
0: As an independent production that depends on the direct financial support of the audience, Best of the Left is as vulnerable as everyone else in this time of economic uncertainty. When people can't go to work or get laid off, non-essential expenses are the first to go. We perfectly understand that. So if you can support the show directly on Patreon, that would be amazing and fantastic, and we thank you for that. But there is also a way you can support the show without it costing you any money. So if you're doing any shopping from the big box store in the sky, you can use our affiliate affiliate link and we'll get a cut of the price from everything you purchase. Our affiliate links for the US, UK, and Canadian stores are in the show notes on our website and on the device you're using to listen right now. If you use our link and you're taken to either the homepage or our Alexa skill page, then you have done it right. There's nothing additional you need to do, and we will benefit from the shopping you do after that. If you take just a moment to bookmark our link to your country's store on your browser, or even delete the mobile app on your phone and add that link as a button in its place, you can enormously help us get through this health and economic crisis just by doing your regular online shopping. Thanks so much for your support.
7: what I've got used to finding in the far right and anti-feminist communities I studied for my PhD was that there were usually a lot more women involved than it often looked like on first glance. We do tend to think of racism or nationalism as somehow less effective on white women than men, when usually what we're actually seeing is the members of far right movements who are more likely to either be in leadership roles, or more alarmingly actually going out there and killing people for their beliefs, both of which do tend to be men. But listeners of this show will probably already know that QAnon tends to be different here. For one thing, many of our familiar favourites with political ambitions, like Marjorie Taylor Greene or Joe Ray Perkins, are obviously women. But the stories that Julian's reported on too really interested me, so like Cecilia Fulbright of Texas, the woman who allegedly chased strangers in her car under the impression they were paedophiles who had kidnapped children for human trafficking, or Cynthia Apsuk, who teamed up with several fellow QAnon believers to kidnap her own child from child services. Now, I cannot stress enough that this amount of women getting involved in political acts of violence is genuinely unusual for a far-right movement. And while it's hard to get exact numbers, it does point to a disproportionate amount of women involved. I decided to talk to other extremism and radicalization researchers I know to see what they thought. One of them, Blythe Crawford, who is a fellow at the International Centre for the Study of Radicalization and Political Violence, said this.
8: I've definitely noticed a lot of women showing support for the conspiracy. In particular, a lot of women I've seen on more mainstream social media sites seem to be very concerned about the Save the Children aspect of the theory. It's hard to say whether it's a localized or general trend, but I would say most of the women I've seen engaging with it online have been from the US or the UK. I do think that there is something about the intense focus on harm being done to children and on the graphic nature of the images and videos associated with Q that is catered towards evoking shock and empathy. And it's possible that these are chiming with a lot of women in particular. I would also say that in many, although by no means all cases, the women that I'm seeing on these more mainstream sites often don't engage with the conspiracy at its deepest level, and many might be very strongly advocating for saving the children, but don't mention Q, and don't seem to be aware of any deeper elements of the conspiracy. So, anecdotally, it seems to me like this aspect of the theory is achieving a reach that previous narratives associated with Q might not have.
7: That final part really interested me, because it gelled with what I had seen some Save the Children advocates saying themselves. Going back to that alt-right German woman, I was struck by how long she spent explaining that you didn't have to believe in QAnon to believe in Save the Children. The premise on which I base my conviction that I have to report on this issue is that if all of it, or any of it is true, then it would be infinitely worse to stay silent about it. And just because some of the claims about these issues are made by a certain movement that you might not consider credible, namely the QAnon movement, that shouldn't deter you from looking into the evidence anyway. As of right now, I don't consider myself an active part of the QAnon movement, but I am on the side watching and evaluating for myself what I think is verifiable and what to me seems too far out there. This video will be about child trafficking and systemic child abuse. So what's going on? I think there's two explanations which don't necessarily compete with one another so much as reinforce each other. The first of these is the obvious one. Women tend to be protective of children, and similarly live with a much bigger fear of sexual assault and exploitation. So even perfectly legitimate organisations that deal with actual sex trafficking rather than mad conspiracy stuff will attract a lot of female supporters. By QAnon rebranding as Save the Children, lots of women with the best of intentions become essentially hoodwinked. I do think there's something more to it though, because pretty much all far-right conspiracies make the same claim about protecting kids. It's one of the easiest ways to market what are some pretty heinous ideas to make them palatable to the general public. And if you were a far-right figure, you'd pretty much be mad not to use the child protection angle. So, for example, conservatives in my country will often say they're protecting children from being brainwashed by making gender transition more difficult, because it's a scary prospect for parents. Similarly, neo-Nazis will often use children as a symbol of the innocence and purity they want to protect. It's why their 14-word slogan ends on protecting the future for white children.
8: Story today is QAnon news brought to you by The Ad Commando. Will Anderson, what's happening in the world of QAnon right now?
9: Alice news today that the group QAnon is releasing its own range of popular children's toys <laughs> to indoctrinate the next generation. Now, I personally, as you know, I've had great success working with conspiracy theorists over the years. Who can forget my weight loss program from fat girth to flat earth? (laughs) And as I said to another group that I was working with, you don't need to be an incel to be in sales. (laughs) I was actually the person who gave QAnon the idea to be anonymous. A lot of people don't know that. QAnon, which is of course is short for Quentin Anonymous. (laughs) And I said to Quentin, it's nominative determinism, Quentin. Your name is anonymous. Lean into it. I said, Quentin, it worked for Banksy, and I think it'll work for you too. Now, that said, I was also the person who suggested to Banksy he should go into banking, so it doesn't (laughs) always work. Anyway, since then, I've had Q's trust. Now, I need to point out, I don't believe in his ideologies, but this is advertising, and as I always say, I don't need to believe in something to convince you to believe in it. In fact, their slogan, Where We Go One, We Go All, is based on the title of my best-selling guide to advertising, Where We Sell One, We Sell All. So the other day I had an idea. I said, Q, I know you're into hashtag save the children and I'm into hashtag taking the children's savings and I've spotted a synergy. (laughs) Two words, kids' toys. I spitballed the whole campaign to him on the spot, Alice. Are you sick of your child's first words being mama or dada? Want your toddler's first word to instead be the storm? Don't care (laughs) when your child goes to bed? more concerned about when they will wake the fuck up, then QAnon Kids is for you. QAnon Kids, or Quack for short. You've heard of baby's first colours, baby's first rhymes. Now we provide baby's first conspiracy theory. Worried your baby's too young? The good news is QAnon's trademark conspiracy theories actually work better on brains that aren't fully formed. <laughs> Let's start with the Mr. Potato Head, which now comes with an additional tinfoil hat. Let your child pass the hours playing with her Mr. Potato Head as he sounds off about the Clintons at family gatherings and shares anti-Semitic memes on Facebook. (laughs) For the little chefs, QAnon's version of the Easy Bake Oven, which only has half the power and will guarantee that all your child's theories will be half-baked. Each oven comes complete with a series of Australian chef and wellness influencer (laughs) Pete Evans' range of cookbooks (laughs) with no recipes. Every page just has a picture of what's trying to be cooked And under the instructions, it says, do your own research. (laughs) For the more advanced child, why not try Hungry Hungry Pedos, where a group of Hollywood celebrities compete to see how many slices of pizza they can jam in their mouth? (laughs) Or maybe the teenage mutant conspiracy theory turtles. Pizza is a code that's sure not to please, these ninjas are not into pepperoni and cheese. (laughs) You've seen her on the catwalk, fighting fires and getting married, but wait until you see your favourite blonde-haired doll do so much yoga and drink so much bone broth that she starts talking about how 5G causes pandemics. (laughs) Yes, it's the QAnon Barbie. (laughs) Not to be confused with our outdoor grill for adults, the Barbie (laughs) QAnon. Perfect for flame-grilling those steaks in the same fires the pedophiles will burn in while they worship their Lord Satan.
8: I mean, Barbie comes with every accessory, but QAnon Barbie doesn't come with a mask. (laughs) A mask
9: sold separately
8: I think it's a brilliant idea to advertise QAnon to children I mean, you can put them to sleep every night counting the sheeple
10: On insecurity, uncertainty, and isolation. So, nationwide protests, the coming election, and a pandemic have provided just the environment to recruit and radicalize new members. Mark Andre Argentino is a data scientist and he studies extremists. He made this chart for me using CrowdTangle, which is a Facebook owned tool. It shows the activity of hundreds of the largest QAnon groups. Do you see that spike? That's in March when states begin COVID 19 lockdown measures. But it hasn't just grown. QAnon content is reaching a new audience, and in some unexpected places. Anti-vaccination, anti-mask activists have embraced the conspiracy theory. Instagram is riddled with QAnon conspiracies, spread in flashy posts by lifestyle influencers, mommy bloggers, and alternative health pages. And in some 200 cities and towns across the U.S. last month, moms, often with kids in tow, gathered in their main streets, holding signs branded with QAnon messages. Now, after six months of rapid growth, Facebook finally took some action, removing some, but not all, of the QAnon groups that were explicitly discussing violence. Twitter made a similar, stronger sweep the week before, and those moves have decreased, but not eliminated QAnon activity on the platforms.
4: Ali. All right. So what do you do if you've got friends, you've got co-workers, you have neighbors who believe this QAnon QAnon stuff? Uh, Shannon Foley Martinez is, and I hope you're sitting down for this, an ex neo-Nazi and a current Yale professor who specifically works to uh, de-radicalize people who've fallen victim to online radicalization. Uh, Shannon, thank you for joining us on the show. Ben, kick us off. So, Shan, first of all, thanks for coming, and second of all, I, look, we talked a few weeks ago for a story about QAnon, and yes. you, know, you told me explicitly, like, I don't know what I was thinking when I was going down that white supremacist rabbit hole. Was it like, did I lose empathy? Did I, what was happening at that time? And what you were saying is, at that point, you didn't think you were becoming a bad guy, and that's really what's happening with these QAnon people, right? They, they don't think they're becoming a bad guy. They think they're becoming a hero in their own story, Right.
11: Sure. i I'm, I'm not a Yale professor. I'm a consultant at uh, apparel at American University, just to, to clear that up. Um, so so
2: so you're accusing me of disinformation already. I'm 30 <laughs> minutes into the show and I've already provided disinformation. Don't clip that and put that on the Internet. OK, go ahead, Jenna.
11: Everybody already thinks that anyway. Um, So one of the things that I didn't recognize while I was radicalizing into what I was doing was that I was creating an echo chamber for myself. In my case, it was a physical echo chamber. I ended up only spending time with people who believed what I believed only in spaces where this was all that was going on. And I didn't recognize that that was happening to me, that that was that my brain got was really like hijacked into only framing the world around this ideology and these beliefs that I was immersing myself in. One of the things that's very important is that these are still individual stories. It's important for us to talk about the meta, right? It's important for us to talk about this bigger, larger QAnon thing. But the people who are part of this are still individual human beings who all have a story behind how they got there. Most of the time, these stories involve um some kind of trauma or layers of trauma in their lives. We know um, specifically when we're talking about women and moms from the Me Too movement, just how endemic uh, sexual assault and sexual violence is for women in the country, that the world feels dangerous and out of control to these people and that they're looking for something that had a meaningful connection to something greater than themselves that they haven't found elsewhere. When we start interjecting the idea that children are in danger. Of course, moms uh, in particular and women are like, oh, we have to save the children. Like, why has no one told me about this? And so then when they hear and they, they start investigating and interacting with these ideas, that there's this coming from this sense of deep disempowerment that when you feel like you have found The true truth, the real facts which hitherto have been hidden from you, that that is very alluring and seductive and feels a lot like empowerment for a lot of people. The QAnon folks tend to be Mm. older people as opposed to a lot of the further right wing stuff and esoteric Hitlerism stuff tends to be younger teenagers and young adults. But this is often middle age and older people who feel like they're tech savvy, but aren't actually really all that tech savvy. So their ability to fact check um, is often really limited and they think they are. So one of the things I, I also work like helping people leave radical violence based stuff. And one of the things that I have found is that when you're talking to people who are involved in conspiracy theories, that the problem is that there really are conspiracies. Like part of the explosion of QAnon is that it is being exploited by domestic and foreign influences to create and sow discord but there isn't a single conspiracy, right? There isn't one driver. There are lots of people who have power, who want to maintain and amplify their power. And there are conspiracies that are going on, but there isn't one singular conspiracy. So how to talk about that in a complex way and how to interject that complexity into what they have, this worldview that they have created to navigate the difficulty of of feeling this world that feels dangerous and yeah. unsafe and that they're losing security that they once had through multitudinous drivers so there's like personal things and then there's everything going on in the world there's recession there's social change yeah. there's you know that 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 we're watching the dismantlement hopefully of uh, white supremacy we're watching violence from far-right actors and so the world does feel dangerous yeah. and unpredictable to a lot of people and, and- so this gives an explanation to why mm-hmm.
4: If you want to cut through the noise, it's this. The unifying theme is a desire for a sort of restorative authoritarianism, for a strong man to come in and forcibly put everything back where it belongs. Everything else is aesthetic. Like Flat Earth, there is a sympathetic nugget in the anxiety that the world has gotten too complex, that things are spinning out of control, but the Q analysis of the problem is that the fault lies with the people outlining the complexity. The purpose of cosmologies like Q, like Flat Earth, is to simplify the world, and I know that sounds ridiculous. The irony here is that this isn't all that far off base. Now, not this specific example. The QAnon map of global politics is almost pure nonsense, but the shape of it isn't. If you were to map out the political landscape of the world, it would look a lot like this. Thousands of political entities, big and small, all with their own goals, values, and incentives navigating an equally complex series of conflicts, alliances, and rivalries in competition for power, fame, or limited resources. So how is something like this making the world simpler? Because it takes all this. The chaos of millions of individuals trying to reshape the world in their own way, for good or ill, and turns it into a single entity. All the world's complexity, all the chaos, it's all the fault of one group. Not an ideology, not a worldview, not historical inertia, not anything so nebulous as the way we think about the world. A single, tangible, identifiable group with a written agenda. These types of conspiratorial beliefs, for all their complex cosmologies, exist in opposition to structural challenges, and a lot of people get involved because they resent structural criticism. Structural criticism poses that we are the way we are because of complicated forces, some intentional and many not, that have compounded and morphed over generations. There's no plan, no template, and no goal. The world won't just magically morph into a better place as a function of its existence. We are responsible for confronting the past, fixing the present, and shaping the future. QAnon, and not just QAnon, many people, many, many people, want to believe that things are the way they are because someone has deliberately crafted it to be that way. That there is a natural order to the world, and we need to just... Trust the plan. Climate scientists, trans and queer activists, women's rights, reproductive autonomy, racial justice, protests against police brutality, generational wealth equality, against the increasing transfer of the public good into the hands of corporations for privatization and exploitation, all of these are interlocking systemic issues. These are inarguably disruptions of the status quo, confrontations of deep-rooted complexities that intersect the lives and futures of billions of people. And it's that disruption, not the underlying injustices, not the underlying conflicts that make QAnon anxious, that make QAnon feel like the world has gotten too complex. They don't want those complexities to exist, and by talking about them, you make them exist it's a form of magical thought. Talking about police brutality wills police brutality into existence. A disruption of the status quo is seen as a disruption of the natural order. The problem they see is that no one has made those people shut up. That is what they want, someone to come in and make those people shut up and go away, to put things back where they belong. Now, This is not a philosophy unique to QAnon, it's the lifeblood of all reactionary movements. And they are, of course, in conflict with facts. Global warming, to pull one example, is real and an existential threat to civilization. That's just a fact. It wasn't willed into existence by people talking about it, it isn't overtuned leftists looking for patterns in clouds, it's the byproduct of dumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere on an industrial scale for 200 years. And there is a temptation to engage on that level, to confront all the material ways in which they are just wrong, and it largely does not work. And what's unique about QAnon is the degree to which it doesn't work, the degree to which the movement is immune to evidence. All reactionary movements are in tension with reality, a tension that eventually results in a psychological crisis, and belief systems like QAnon are the end point of that crisis, the point where reality itself becomes an enemy. Because ultimately it's not about facts, it's about power. QAnons are not otherwise empty vessels who believe one wacky thing, they have an agenda. QAnon, what it accepts, what it believes, is driven by the outcomes it justifies.
11: The Democratic National Convention is thinking about bringing Bernie Sanders back to run for president in 2020. Can you imagine? Like, what if he gets elected? I I seriously hope not. Hopefully all this stuff goes down and there is an awakening and everyone lines up behind President Trump. I'm fed up with the attacks on President Trump. I think he's the greatest president that we'll have in our lifetimes Mm -hmm. and I'm grateful for all he's doing and I'm proudly running for Congress in Georgia's 14th district.
4: The reason they aren't more bothered by Q constantly getting things wrong, why they aren't more bothered by the extreme inconsistencies and outright contradictions, by the claims that are just materially wrong, is because it gives them power over others who are bound by something as weak and flimsy as reality. They claim to be against corruption while hanging their hopes on an openly corrupt man, and that naked hypocrisy is the point they will effortlessly carve out an exception because it makes them exceptional. They engage in wild hypocrisy as an act of domination, adhering to something demonstrably untrue out of spite, because they believe that power belongs to those with the greatest will to take it, and what greater sign of will than the ability to override truth. Their will is a hammer that they are using to beat reality itself into a shape of their choosing. A simple world where reality is exactly what it looks like through their eyes, devoid of complexity, devoid of change, where they are right and their enemies are silent. They are trying to build a flat earth.
0: We've just heard clips today, starting with Tom Hartman laying out the fact that QAnon's most central theories are mostly rehashed anti-Semitic propaganda dating back to the Nazis and beyond. You are not so smart, discuss the emotional and psychological elements of conspiratorial thinking that are exacerbated by the nature of the internet. The topical from The Onion satirically explained that everything about QAnon is actually true and supported by facts if you just read between the lines. QAnon Anonymous first spoke with Michael Hobbs about the nature of human trafficking and how it is almost nothing like the pop culture definition. QAnon Anonymous also spoke with Annie Kelly about how women are being drawn into QAnon. The Last Post, more satire, spoke with comedian Will Anderson about the new line of QAnon children's toys. And by the way, if you need a daily satirical news podcast set in another dimension, I definitely recommend that you make it The Last Post. It has become my new favorite this year. Ali Velshi on MSNBC spoke with a reformed neo-Nazi about how people fall prey to cult conspiracy echo chambers. We heard a portion of a video from Folding Ideas on YouTube explaining the search for simplicity that is the through-line between Flat Earthers and QAnon followers. All of that was available to everyone, but members also heard some bonus content that everyone else missed out on. There was a clip from Deconstructed giving some historical context with American conspiracy theories through time. Power Corrupts spoke with a thoughtful, nuanced, lucid-sounding QAnon follower, because yes, they do exist, and on the media dove into the world of conspirituality. For non-members, those bonus clips are linked in the show notes and they are part of the transcript for today's show so you can still find it if you make the effort. But to hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com support or request a financial hardship membership. Every request is granted, no questions asked because I don't want money to be a barrier to information. And now we'll hear from you this first voice. Post mail is from Scott, and his comment was posted under the episode all about the post office and the census. I think he wanted you to hear what he thought about that episode.
6: Jay, this episode was so good. I put off listening to it for a long time because I thought it would be, one, boring and two, depressing, but it was neither of those things. Bravo. Hey, everyone. Listen to this episode. The planet money section is superb. Hi Jay, this is Lars from Brooklyn. I wanted to comment on an issue mentioned in voice response in a recent show and your reaction about why someone would not vote for Biden. The conversation with the guy who said he was thinking of voting Green Party due to his positions informed by his faith actually had me leaning to changing my mind from Joe Biden back to Howie Hawkins. And the reasoning goes like this, I live in New York City, so my vote for president in the general election is, in all practical consideration, not going to make any difference in the electoral college. If it was a direct popular vote, there would not be any question and I would vote for Biden. So, by voting for Hawkins, it would build credibility for the Green Party, which I generally support, and help them maintain their ballot line inclusion, etc. The additional, probably wishful, thinking is that it would also indicate to Biden, if he does win, that there is support for a progressive agenda to the left of his platform. With everything that has gone on more recently with the Supreme Court and Trump's proclamations about not ensuring a peaceful transfer of power, I am now leaning back to Biden as we need to send as loud a message to 45 as possible, but I'm surprised this isn't talked about more unless the fear is that people in states where it may not be an absolute Democratic lock might do this, and inadvertently contribute to a Democratic Party loss. Listening to the responses in episode 1369, I feel that in order to contribute to the conversation I need to provide a bit more of my perspective. I would contend that, in the aggregate, underprivileged Americans have suffered more by Democrats who have compromised and supported Democratic neoliberal politicians than by those who have supported progressive third-party candidates. The result has been a slide to the right by the Democratic Party far past most Western European countries whom we would like to compare ourselves to. What most liberal elites won't own up to is that they have largely benefited from these pro-business, pro-market ideologies, especially within the tech industry and urban professional class. So what privilege, exactly, are these people, who tend to mostly benefit from these policies, really exercising by voting for the center? I would argue they are exercising the privilege to enrich themselves, even though they would never see it that way to the detriment of the working class. What was a win-win situation for these elites, personally beneficial policies regardless of which major party won, has now turned into a horror show with Trump and forced those in even mildly contested district to vote him out no matter what. I realize that if everyone voted with their conscience in solidly blue states, there is a slight chance those states could end up contested. I don't feel that's even a remote possibility in New York where I live. So where to cast my vote seems at least worth discussing and not dismissing out of hand. Having said all that, given the gravity of current events, I currently do plan on voting for Biden, although it does feel a bit like I'm doing it mostly to run up the score in the popular election, arguably an emotional decision.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work on the show. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Dan, and Ken, for their volunteer work helping to put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can send us a voice memo by email, record a message at 202 3991 or write me a message directly to j at bestofleft.com. Now, in response first to Lars from Brooklyn about voting green in a solidly blue state, sounds like Lars sort of worked out his thoughts as he went and came to the same conclusion that that I've come to, and I, I would just say that I have also had those same thoughts, and if you go back to 2016, you can probably dig up somewhere where I said this exact thing and said that when I talk about theories of change and voting strategically and all of that, I really do mean only in swing states, and that if you're in a solidly blue or solidly red state, then Your theory of change has the freedom to change based on that information. And if you want to send legitimacy to a third party and you understand that because you don't live in a swing state, you can do that without really risking affecting the election in any way, then that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Now, I mean, whether that theory of change has legs, whether it's likely to work or go anywhere, I mean, that's a whole separate discussion. But in terms of your theory of change being at odds with the immediate dangers to vulnerable populations in this moment, if the election goes the wrong way, That discussion gets to be completely separated based on that. So, Lars, I I completely agree. If you live in a solid blue state and you want to vote green, I generally don't have a problem with that and, and have said as much in the past. However, just as Lars concluded, I think this year is different and it is probably best to vote for Biden for the sake of running up the popular vote and... Now I'll just respond to Lars' kind of final question. Is that an emotional decision? Is it an emotional decision to think there's nothing politically or legally advantageous about running up the popular vote? It would just feel good. And I would argue that no, it is not just an emotional decision, because democracy as a concept, or if you want to get finicky about it, democratic republic in which we vote to elect representatives. It's not just about what's written in the laws. Democracy is about the perception of legitimacy. Democracy is nothing if the laws that are written are not perceived by the population to be legitimate. The winners of the election mean nothing if they are perceived by the population as not having legitimately won. And so the rules that we have in place for how we run our elections and the laws that we have in place to maintain the structure of democracy are in place to maintain the perception of legitimacy, because that is, at the very end of the day, The only thing we really have to hang on to, it goes all the way back to the government deriving its power from the consent of the governed. That consent is contingent on perception, because if Trump has proven anything in his tenure, it is that laws don't mean anything if humans don't step up and enforce those laws or rules or norms Life is what we make it, our government is what we make it, and perception is at the core of the human experience. You know, you've you've heard the term, uh, my perception is my reality. That is why it is so important for us to maintain the structures of democracy and maintain the legitimacy in the perception of the minds of the governed. And so I think that it is not an emotional decision to just run up the popular vote. I think that if Joe Biden wins the election, it is equally important that he be perceived as legitimately winning the election and running up the popular vote is part of that perception. And then secondly today, I just have some recommendations for for anyone who uh, wants more information on QAnon, or need some resources to share with someone you may come across who you think may be going down that path and there are a couple of very different ones and and then a third on a separate track, even so, I'm going to share all three of these. Uh, the first is the QAnon Anonymous podcast. We heard from them today. They, you know, they do deep dives to understand the mechanics of QAnon, and and I think that one of the best inoculations against conspiratorial thinking is understanding really well how it works, so that you can then see those mechanics at play or in play in the real world and be sort of inoculated against that. So the QAnon Anonymous podcast, it's a good resource for people. And and then there's the one that members will have heard this referenced in their bonus clip from on the media. So you know if you're not a member but you want to check that out, it's the on the media clip in in the bonus section about conspirituality, and this is the one that, you know, maybe my audience or friends of my audience may be more attuned to or susceptible to, and it's all about the world of you know, like the school-to-prison pipeline. (laughs) There's now the yoga to anti-vax to QAnon pipeline, and conspirituality is the sort of when you're in the world, uh, you know, if, if you if you are into yoga and, and spiritual thinking, well, then maybe you would be interested in this other far out idea about vaccinations being bad. And then once you're on that road, it's a short jump to child abuse rings and that sort of thing. And then you're getting sucked all the way down the rabbit hole. So the Conspirituality Podcast focuses on that aspect of it and i think could be a good resource for people it was discussed in the on the media clip as as being something that genuinely helped people who recognized themselves at least in retrospect as as maybe being in the danger zone heading heading down the wrong path or seeing that they very well could have and came across this podcast and were pulled in a <laughs> in a better healthier more fact-based direction And then, as I said, the third is it's on a very different track, but I think you'll see how they're related. I highly recommend a limited series podcast called The Dream. It's all about multi-level marketing. And if you or anyone you know is considering, I mean, especially in desperate financial times, which, you know, we are definitely experiencing right now, that is when people start getting the idea, maybe I should buy into one of these multi-level marketing companies and become a sell something from home through social media on the internet. And it's really important to understand the logistics and the mechanics, the marketing, all of the techniques being used by these companies to convince people that you can make lots of money with them and then see the hard, fast, realities that make it literally impossible not like because you didn't work hard enough impossible like literally impossible to make money for the vast majority of people who join into those companies so the dream i highly recommend it it does a fantastic job i would think inoculating people against this and anyone in financial hard times needs this information so that they can make an informed decision about joining a multi-level marketing company because when you're in hard financial times and you're desperate, you're not thinking straight and you you will do kind of whatever it takes you think and you think like, well, if I just work hard enough, I can I can make this work. But if that's literally impossible for the vast majority of people, the most likely outcome for joining one of those companies is to be horribly, horribly in debt. So to go from hard financial times to even worse financial times is the most likely outcome for joining one of those. So uh, the QAnon Anonymous podcast, the Conspirituality podcast, and the Dream podcast, all recommendations that uh, you should check out or share with anyone who you think could benefit from them. As always, keep comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or emailing me at j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com slash support. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find